Welcome to Upwelling, where we bring the richness of local literature to the airwaves. I'm Michelle Blackwell. Today I'm focusing on missed releases. Tansy Chapman and Maureen Epstein both released their books during the COVID shutdown, which limited their ability to get the word out. Both local writers will talk about their books and how COVID impacted their releases. Two-time Emmy Award winner Laura Maria Sensabella is my special guest. Sensabella was an artist-in-residence last May during the run of her play Paradise at the Mendocino Theatre Company. She will talk about playwriting, the impetus for Paradise, and her other love, teaching. Tansy is a retired Episcopalian priest and spiritual director. She was born and raised in England before moving to Boston, Massachusetts, and then retiring in Mendocino, California. Her novel, Rose Gray, is in part a coming-of-age story and in part a history lesson of the economic trials Britain faced following World War II. It's set in a small English farming community that is still struggling with the scarcity and emotional scars of war and its economic upheaval. Rose's family dynamic further complicates her life as her father falls deeper into depression and her mother seeks solace outside the marriage. Tansy, thank you for joining us. It's wonderful to be here. Are you ready for your first reading? Yes, I am. The girls set off across the plowed field. Where were we going? Rose breaks into a run and he points to the water tower on the far edge of the field. Over there, I'll race you. She leads the way, leaping over ruts, her rubber boots collecting mud from the rich soil. Above them, a large crow, tattered wings stretched out, rides with the currents. Rose lags behind, arms wrapped around her small breasts. Annie looks back. Why are you running like that? Her voice reaches Rose above the wind and piercing sweet sound of low-flying birds. Rose shouts back. It hurts if I don't. Annie stops with hands on her hip and looks Rose up and down. Whoops, you need a bra. Not me, though. Ma says I'm as flat as a board. She whoops and takes off again, zigzagging, seemingly pleased with her own wit. Her face hot, Rose follows, feet pounding the earth, even as she worries that she may be trampling newly planted seeds. She finds Anne lying spread-eagled on the concrete slab, squinting up at the water tower's iron ladder. Rose joins her, watching small clouds race far above the structure, silhouetted black against the blue sky. It's like being on a ship. Annie rolls over to one side, props on an elbow, and studies Rose's face. Where did you get that bruise? What bruise? Rose feels herself blushing. The one here. Annie pokes her cheek. That hurts. It's all different colors. What happened to you this time, Clownsy? Rose squirms under her friend's scrutiny. I must have banged into a door. She puts an arm across her face, not wanting Annie to see the lie and all that's behind it. You better not fall when you're up there, Annie sits and points to the ladder. Before Rose can speak, she has them both on their feet. We're going to climb it. Climb what? We're not allowed. My dad will kill us if he finds out. Why? We have to. Why? Because otherwise we can't belong to the club, that's why. Annie's brown eyes are fierce. She confronts her friend, hands on hips. You took the oath, didn't you? Don't turn lily-livered on me, Rose Gray. I'm not lily-livered. Prove it, or I'm going home. 
Behind her rose reeds red letters, danger, keep off. Annie starts to walk away. Wait, Rose can't bear her to leave. It's true that they've talked for months about starting a club. They cleared a space above some pigsties, reachable only by climbing a frayed rope once used to haul straw bales. Rose recalls the stink of dung and how the animals stopped to watch as the girls clambered into the dusty loft. Perched on wooden boxes, they discussed a password and that membership would be limited. Definitely no boys, Annie had pronounced. Definitely not, agreed Rose, secretly intrigued by the thought. They argued over what to call themselves and finally decided on daring demons. Then a ritual that Annie insisted all secret societies do, pricking fingers with a darning needle and mingling blood and spit. The water tower will be our initiation rite, Annie declares. She's shorter than Rose and sturdy, her brown hair sticking out from under her hat. She appraises the tank 20 feet above. I thought we already had an initiation rite. You mean the blood and spit? If we're going to be daring demons, we have to do things that take real nerve. Rose hates it when her friend makes up rules as she goes along. You go first, Rose, and I'll steady the ladder. Here's a piece of chalk. We'll have to make a mark at the top to prove we did it. She thrusts the chalk into Rose's pocket. Who says I have to go first? I do, because I'm the chief. If you do this, you can be chief next time. Rose looks up. The ladder seems to stretch forever. She grasps her bottom rung, rust flakes. More than anything, she wants Annie to think her brave. Taking a deep breath, she climbs hand over hand. Don't look down. Instructions float up from below. Rose tightens her grip. The tank looms. Racing clouds above make her dizzy. She can barely hold on. Closing her eyes, she feels suspended in time. The cold metal bites into her palms as the wind bangs against the tower. Rooks sail past, throaty cores jubilant as their dark shapes circle around. What's wrong, Rose? She dare not move her head. I feel giddy. The landscape reels. I'm going to fall. She imagined her body's thud on the concrete, bones breaking, her stomach split open like the dog she once saw run over in the road, its warm insides steaming, spilled out. The ladder shakes. Annie, what are you going to do? She feels a firm grip on her ankle. Only eight more rungs and you'll reach the top. I can't. Pretend you're climbing the ropes at gym in school. I'm hopeless at gym. I want to come down. Come on now, one step at a time. Shakily Rose climbs another rung. I don't think this ladder will bear us both. Then we'll die together. Oh, don't make jokes. I don't like this one bit. Gritting her teeth, Rose climbs until her eyes level with the tank. Gray 
green lichen covers the corrugated surface. The wind blows in fierce gusts and drums in her ears. Annie stays quiet. Rees Rose sees only the top of her head. Annie? What? Do you remember the, me telling you about that boy, Patrick Murray? Ooh, I can't hear you. Patrick Murray. Rose flinches as her voices echo. It feels irreverent to be shouting at a dead person's name. Far off, the cry of a bird sounds like a person calling. Annie climbs higher. Her arms reach around Rose's waist as she grasps the ladder. Rose feels a warm cheek pressed against her back. Wasn't he electrocuted, Annie says? The heat of her friend's body acts as a shield, both a comfort and a distraction. He was climbing a pile and touched a live wire. Rose knew the sickly-looking boy from Sunday school. From the start, she'd had a feeling he'd die young. Such uncanny thoughts alarm her, especially when they come true. Wow. That was Tansy Chapman reading from her 2020 release, Rose Gray. Tansy, in this book, it's a part of British history right after World War II. And I was wondering if you yourself lived through this period in time. Yes, I did. I was born in 1937 at the end. So I was just a baby when war started. But I was seven when it ended. So I have some pretty clear memories of it. Mm-hmm. And did you live through the Blitz? Was it where you were located? No, we were in the country, but what happened is we had relatives who were in the Blitz. So they all came to live with us. So we ended up with a tiny house and 11 evacuees. Wow. So you definitely got a sense of that experience. Your main character, Rose, she is at times sweet and and nasty, as a young teen can be. She feels very much like a real person. Is Rose Gray someone you knew Or is she an amalgamation of young women from the period? I don't know that it's either one. I think Rose is a reflection of my myself and my own, not historically so much as my own feelings and experiences of war. And uh, she came into my imagination uh, to carry that. This is a story about how war impacts those who are on the home front, away from the fighting. Even after peace is established, the Ukrainian war is having economic impacts worldwide. None of it compares to the impacts on the people of Ukraine, but pain is pain. Are there lessons from the post-World War II period that we can learn to help us understand and cope with the international impacts of our current war? Well, I think that it's, it's very helpful for us to try to know as much as we can about what's actually happening because the war implicates everyone. Even though we are thousands of miles away, we cannot help being aware of the kind of suffering that is happening right now. And the implications of that is how it's going to affect other people, other countries. So it's a reality in our lives. How long after World War II before Britain's economy recovered? Well, um, I'm not an historian, but I would say the 50s, things started to really uh, change. And uh, though that would be a difficult question for me to answer in in detail, um, I do know that life started to get better and the building was happening, uh, but there were still many scars of the war. 
That's a very hard question because maybe on the surface things were starting to look better, but the the internal scars go on, certainly. So let's get back to the book. Rose's mother and father married under less than optimal conditions. The mother was in love with someone else. Why did she choose to go through with this marriage? Well, what we learn uh, from the book is that when Graham, whom we will meet later, comes into her life, she is already engaged to Stanley. And Stanley is a very romantic figure for her and handsome. And she makes quite a commitment to him. And then bad things happen to him. He loses his money and uh, his father dies. And I would, my guess is that the parents her parents, Cecilia and her father, were pretty Victorian in their morals and ethics and would have been pushing her really to follow through in the wedding. Rose's father lived a privileged childhood that was upended by the Great Depression. Was he less resilient because of his earlier status? I would imagine, Stanley, as I've created him, having gone to public school, he probably had a lot of resilience in, in terms of being a, uh, a sportsman and reasonably bright and it was a sort of a social hierarchy where he was probably somewhat of a bully. That kind of resilience was very hard for him when that was taken away from him. He had to learn to be uh, somebody's employee working for the government, doing a lot of the physical work of taking care of a herd of pigs. But he loved the pigs. I think he really cared about the animals. As Rose matures, she better understands her parents' pain, and she gains confidence through her friendships outside the home. The story ends as she embarks on a new adventure that includes the opposite sex, leaving the reader to wonder or speculate her future. Will there be a sequel? (laughs) It's amazing how many people ask that. And in some ways, I'm curious what the sequel is. So if I want to find out, I either let somebody else write it. I have been very mildly approached uh, by a screenwriter, but I think if I want to know, I better start writing it. Okay, I think you're right. You're listening to Upwelling. I'm Michelle Blackwell. We will return to an interview with Tansy Chapman, reading from her 2020 novel, Rose Gray. All right, Tansy, let's go ahead and read the second selection, and then we'll have some more questions. Indoors, her mother has piled a plate with toasted cheese and another with homemade oat cakes. The table is set in the living room with the best cups and saucers and a large pot of tea. A newly lit fire burns in the grate. Rose stands next to the vet as he washes his hands, ready to pass him a clean towel. She again notices the deep scar on his inner left arm that travels all the way to the wrist. She wonders if it hurts. She'd like to brush her fingers lightly along the white zigzag line. He sees her looking and smiles. I was lucky. I might have lost my arm. Many did, and far worse. They join Alice in the next room, where she pours the tea. Rose wonders where she should sit, unsure in the presence of their guest. David pats the chair next to him. Come over here by me. Her mother looks up. Well, before you do that, go and change out of your school uniform. Look how dirty it is. I'll have to clean it before school tomorrow. Upstairs in the bedroom, Rose catches scraps of conversation. Exact words are hard to make out, and yet the chatter flows up the stairs like music. So different, she feels, from the strained voices of her parents. 
or harder to bear, their awful silence. David welcomes her when she returns and tells her she looks pretty in her civvies, as he calls them. She looks at the floor, blushing, and notices he has taken off his boots and there's a hole in one of his socks. Her mother, in the middle of telling David a story, motions Rose to sit at the table. She continues, I'll never forget the excitement here on VE Day. All of England gripped in the midst of a heat wave, so unlike the usual weather in June. Everything seemed unreal and very quiet, except for the radio announcers, mad with joy that the war finally was ending. Rose dropped a lump of sugar into her tea, watching it dissolve into the swirling brown liquid. Next to her, David casually rests his arm on the back of her chair, gravely listening. Rose hopes her mother will go on talking forever. Not a plane to be heard, Alice says, after years of throbbing and droning in the skies and wondering how soon the sirens would start. For the first time, we could leave the curtains open and let in the night air. We could see the smoke of bonfires all across the valley, and I knew people were celebrating. I wanted so much to be there and dance in the streets. Rose watches, astonished by the shine in her mother's eyes, the high color in her cheeks. David leans forward as though he too sees what Mum is remembering. Sitting quietly, Rose thinks of his closeness as they tended the baby pigs. A piece of straw has caught on his shirt collar. She wishes she dared reach over and pluck it off. Her eyes dart toward the door. Worrying Dad will walk in, bringing with him the heaviness he often carries, like a sack of pig meal. Mum reaches in her pocket for her cigarettes and then changes her mind. No chance of taking the train to London where the hullabaloo was going on, but I did at least take Rose down to the village. Stanley wouldn't come. Said he hated crowds. He was strangely downhearted. Listening, Rose experiences again the intense heat of an enormous bonfire, people cheering as they burned an effigy of Hitler, its face distorted and melting. Everyone held hands, wildly dancing they circled the fire, but Rose broke away, crying, imagining the horror of burning human flesh. Annoyed, her mother took her home, telling her she'd spoil the fun. David turns. What do you remember, Rose? The way he asks feels real, not like the kind of questions grown-ups ask when they don't really want an answer. Rose believes if she told him about the bonfire, he'd listen and perhaps understand. But she holds back from casting a shadow on her mother's mood. I remember Mum waking me in the morning and hugging me and saying the war was over. She hung a big Union Jack from the windows, but there was no breeze to make it flap. What about you, David? Alice asks. Well, I was in Germany and there was unspeakable suffering, as it turned out far worse than any of us knew. His voice drops, and soon after that, of course, there was Japan. Rose stares. David's brown eyes are different from her father's. Dad's eyes are blue and guarded, reminding Rose sometimes of an animal that's been injured, wary of anyone coming too close. When David looks at her, she sees affection and warmth and wonders whether he'd like to have children of her own. She becomes conscious of the vet studying her, almost as if he can read her thoughts. Abruptly, he changes the subject. Tell us more about the good times, Alice. He clears a space on the table for his elbows. How about that bottle of port wine you offered me the other day? Thank you, Tansy. It's a good chapter. It takes us back into the war and also gives us some understanding of what happened when at least the European portion of the war was over and gives us a little insight into Rose because she is a very sensitive person. 
The other thing that this chapter does is it brings in David. And David's role is as a spiritual leader to the family, but he's a veterinarian and he's not a priest. Why have a veterinarian be a spiritual leader instead of a priest in this situation? That's an interesting question. Why did David appear? Well, I think he's he's very caring with animals, and he seems to be able to extend that to Rose, certainly, and to this family. He hasn't attached to them, but it makes one wonder about what his history is and what kind of suffering he'd had. What his family is like, we don't know that, at the, certainly at this point. Okay. What inspired you to write Rose Gray? She showed up. Um, I was writing short stories, and this was when I was still living in Boston. And I somehow had only just begun, though it was quite late in life, to think a lot about the war. And her voice came into some of my writing but not really seriously. Uh, it was only later when I moved here and, and joined a writing class with Charlotte Gullock, who could inspire anybody to write anything. She's such a good teacher. The character of Keith is an interesting addition to the story. He plays the role of a foil, but he also provides important information to Rose about the goings-on in her own neighborhood. Is there more to his story than is on the page? No, I don't think so. He's he's a very, very vague figure in my past. There was a little boy that lived next door. One of the amazing things about writing is characters show up, and he is very useful in keeping Rose knowing what's going on with his own family because he spends a lot of time sitting on the, uh, the air shelter roof, checking not only on his family but on hers and on her. He's like a little spy. He's like the little brother, but there is no little brother that's spying on his older sister. (laughs) Okay. In your foreword, you acknowledge all the help you received from the writing community during the process of writing this book. Why was that important? Well, I don't think I would have finished the novel if I hadn't had writing groups. I had a wonderful, I had, first of all, Charlotte and Charlotte's husband started a writing group for people with novels, um, Drew Carpenter. And I was in a writing group and we encouraged each other and I learned a lot about writing. I also learned a lot about reading by doing this exercise and then for a while I stopped writing. I had other things going on in my life but then I joined another group with Molly Dwyer and others and these people teach. I mean they're just uh, they, we give each other feedback. It's it's very life-giving. How many years did you work on Rose Gray? Oh, my gosh. Well, probably at least 10 years of when I'm actually writing. The last five years pretty intensively um, because I went from thinking it was a short story and then saying to Charlotte, I wonder if this is a novel. And she said, yes, it is a novel. Keep going. Do you write on a regular basis? I write regularly in a journal. I have short stories in the background. It's time for me to go back to writing. I, I sort of stopped. I'm not sure why, but I, and I do have some professional writing, but I really want to go back and it'll take something to light a fire and get me going. <laughs> the book came out in mid-2020 and during the COVID shutdown. How did that impact getting out the information about the book, celebrating the end of the book? How did that impact you? Well, it impacted me because we couldn't get 
uh, we couldn't go in person and uh, talk about our books. I mean, the book gallery was wonderful here in Mendocino, and we did a Zoom meeting. It just was very different. There was no traveling, going to other places. My publishers didn't seem to be setting anything up in terms of uh, ways of promoting, which perhaps would have been a separate thing altogether. So COVID is like war. <laughs> this one, you know, the pandemic, it infected everyone. And I think it was a downer in terms of people's energy and mood. Have you yeah. considered re-releasing the book now that most of the impacts of the pandemic have kind of gone by the wayside? I don't think I know how to do that. Are you working on a second novel? Not at the moment, only in my imagination. Okay. <laughs> and what is your editing process? My editing practice at the moment is is to reread what I've written and edit it as I go along. And then when I get to the end of a chapter to go back, I do a fair amount of editing myself. And of course, with a, with a teacher or with a writing group, you do that on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Before we go, are you planning any public readings or tours in the near future for Rose Gray? I don't have anything planned. Uh, Rose has a wonderful way of showing up when people just come up to me and say, well, I read your book. And that happens and often enough for me to be really happy that she's still going and that even very young kids are relating to it as well as old people, you know, people in their 80s and people in their 10s or 11s. <laughs> Would you consider Rose Gray a young adult novel? In the end, I decided not, because it does seem to appeal to all age groups, mm -hmm. I think. Where can people purchase Rose Gray? At the local bookstore. <laughs> <laughs> Please do. All right. <laughs> Thank you, Tansy, for being with us today. It's been fun. Thank you for joining us for Season 2 of Upwelling. You've been listening to an interview with local author Tansy Chapman about her 2020 release, Rose Gray. Coming up, Maureen Epstein will read a selection from her 2020 book of poetry, Horizon Line. And Laura Maria Sensabella will talk about her play, Paradise. Maureen Epstein's most recent poetry collection, Horizon Line, was published in 2020 through Main Street Rag and has a release scheduled for next year titled Daughter. She is known for her eco-poetry, which has appeared in numerous journals, anthologies, a textbook on geometric modeling, and been featured in a National Audubon Society report. Maureen was nominated for a Pushcart Prize in 2005. Originally from New Zealand, she currently lives in Mendocino, California. Maureen is going to go ahead and read her first selection, Horizon Line. Horizon Line. To limb a life in perspective. The artist first defines a horizon line, eye level to the viewer. From my hill of years, the horizon is fluid, as in watery, but also as in unpredictable. On the sea's face, a wall of fog moves in and out, like histories remembered and forgotten. Sometimes silver striates the sea with such a glitter of insight, I am bedazzled and cannot look. Sometimes... Fog bank and ocean merge with such blue-gray unity. It seems the horizon rises so that I stand on the shore, dwarfed by a surf of knowledge that pounds at my ignorance. Sometimes the sea becomes invisible, the white air a questioning emptiness, a finger-touch of damp against the cheek. Lovely. Thank you, Maureen. 
when I read Horizon Line for the first time, I found it had a wisdom that comes to us as we age. Our knowledge will never be complete. Change is constant. Is that what you were trying to say? Yes, that is pretty much it. (laughs) (laughs) Does the use of fog foretell the loss everyone faces as they age, whether it's a loved one or health or memory? Well, the poem is mostly a metaphor, but at the same time, I wanted to convey the experience of fog as we have it here on the coast. It's such a magical entity that moves in and out as it wills. And here from my view in my office, I see the sea and sometimes I don't see the sea. And that creates an energy in my life that is pretty important. It's true. I've noticed where now where I am, I'm much further inland, but I often will have the fog in the morning and then I watch it sort of recede as the sun takes over. The last line, a finger touch of damp against the cheek. Does that foreshadow death? Oh, yes. You've got it. (laughs) (laughs) I feel so smart. Well, it's a lovely piece. So Maureen has a second poem that she's going to read for us. It's called Empty Nest. This morning, I watched the swallows fledge, the violet greens, who each year nest where crossbeam and roof timbers meet in a corner of the porch. Two round white bodies perched at the nest cave edge. Two dark-capped heads peered out. Of a sudden one took off, and then the other, leaving me oddly bereft, a feeling not quite grief, more sweet than that, more a memory of that pensive pride when human young depart the family home. Such a short time the swallows have, a few summer weeks to perform their frenzied parental crescendo of nesting and feeding, of swooping in and zooming out. Then, suddenly... The task is done. Such a short time we humans have to feel the procreative energy that links us to an interwoven chain of being, to know the preciousness of feathered lives, sunlight on an iridescent wing. Thank you, Maureen. It seems to me that emptiness is also a poem about agings and the things that we lose when that happens, but it has within it a celebration of life. Are you asking us to take time for simple pleasures? Well, the poem is intended as a celebration of life. Children grow up, they leave their family home, and make their way into the world, but we don't lose them. I recently attended the university graduation of one of my grandsons, and what I tried to convey in this poem is that same sense of, as I say, pensive pride I felt in that day. That's lovely. You seem to take some ownership of the birds you share your home with, pleasure in their success, but it feels like the last stanza has within it a warning as well. Were you trying to warn us? I don't like the concept of ownership when we're talking about nature. Uh, The swallows, along with the foxes and the skunks and the banana slugs and all the other creatures who share this land, they were here long before we built this house. Yes, We all have a short time to be here, but more importantly, we humans need to recognize that all life is linked, as I say in the poem, in an interwoven chain of being. I want to help the reader recognize the beauty of this shared life. You published this book, The Horizon Line Collection. It came out in 2020 during the shutdown. How did that impact your ability to market and distribute your collection? In a word, disaster. 
Books typically take many months from acceptance to publication. I received the acceptance from Main Street Rag in mid-2019. By November that year, I'd put together a marketing task list and started working through it. I did get pre-publication sales information out to my out-of-town contacts, and I'd started working with uh, Christy Olson Day of Gallery Bookshop on local marketing. Now, Christy was going to help me get that all together. But my health was failing. Uh, I'd been in and out of doctor's offices and hospitals since Thanksgiving. And finally, in February 2020, I received my diagnosis, uh, stage four Hodgkin's lymphoma. So within weeks of that, the COVID pandemic shut everything down, including all of Gallery Bookshop's events. The whole country was out of it. But by then, I was so ill that I was just focused on getting through chemo and staying alive. So, and with the help of many dear friends, I very slowly recovered, but the book just lost out. This is an opportunity to kind of reboot that. Hopefully that uh, will open it up to more people and they'll start looking for it. Well, that would be great. How do you find publishers for your poetry? Well, there are many resources online. Uh, my favorite is the Poets and Writers uh, database of literary magazines, and that's at um, pw.org. And it's a really great site uh, that's organized by genre, for example. You can uh, just look for, in the magazine section, uh, journals that publish poetry. And then it's also organized by subgenre, such as nature, environmental, and a whole slew of other themes that you can search on. So if you're you know, really focused on feminism, for instance, you could search on poetry feminism or uh, poetry humor or just however you'd like to do it and then you uh, from there you can go to the the website of the particular journal and, and look at it from there and um, and that is really important I can talk about that a little later. Does your Pushcart Prize nomination open doors for you and how did that come about? Well Pushcart nominations are made by the editor of a journal that the poet is published in. In my case that was Basalt Magazine which is out of Eastern Oregon University as for opening doors, I really don't know. I would hope that poems that one submits to a journal are chosen for publication based on the, the journal's needs and the quality of the work. How would you advise aspiring poets who are interested in publishing? Hmm. Rule number one, develop a thick skin. You're going to get many, many rejections. And it's okay to weep a little at first, but you have to learn not to take rejection personally. And then rule number Number two, and this kind of follows from rule number one, read, read, read. Most poetry journals are online these days, and they all have web pages that tell you what they're looking for and what they care about. So read the poems they've published, read their descriptions of what they're all about, and as you're reading the poems, ask yourself whether yours would be good companions to what they've already put into print. That's a great way of putting it. Where can people purchase your poetry collections? Horizon Line is available for purchase from Gallery Bookshop in, in Mendocino, and it's also online from the publisher, which is uh, Main Street Rag Bookstore, all one word, dot com. Daughter, it's coming out next March from uh, Finishing Line Press, so I'll be sending the pre-publication announcements out uh, later this year. 
Thank you. You're most welcome. You've been listening to an interview with poet Maureen Epstein about her 2020 poetry collection, Horizon Lane. Coming up, Laura Maria Sensabella will talk about her play, Paradise. You're listening to Upwelling. I'm Michelle Blackwell. Laura Maria Sensabella is an award-winning playwright and has won two Emmy Awards for screenwriting. She teaches at the New School for Drama in New York. Sensabella wrote Paradise, which had a successful run at the Mendocino Theatre Company last spring. She was an artist-in-residence and taught a playwriting class in late May. Paradise focuses on first-generation immigrant communities and the clash of cultures they face in the United States. Paradise was a finalist for the 2016 Soroyan Paul Playwriting Prize for Human Rights. She also has won the Jerry Asher Award in Screenwriting and the Tennessee Chapbook Prize for Drama and has been nominated for a Pushcart Prize. Welcome, Laura. Thank you for joining us for Upwelling. Thank you. I'd like to first talk about the teacher-student relationship in Paradise, and then to get into broader questions about your writing. The teacher, Royston, is reluctant at first to engage with the student. Have you seen this type of hesitancy as a teacher, and what does it say about the pressure on teachers? Well, I know on the college level, particularly for someone like Royston, they actually don't have to engage with the students at all. A scientist like that is actually required to get money for research. That is their primary function. The teaching is secondary. So he's bringing that ethos into the public schools. I do know myself as a college professor that you want to engage with all of the students, but it is often overwhelming, the number of students that you have and the number of issues that people bring to you. The student, Yasmin, she's highly self-directed, very confident. She's an orphan living with extended family. Where does she get the drive that propels her in the play? I think from her immigrant heritage. Her parents left everything to come to the United States. And her father, who probably was a very smart man, couldn't study because he just had to make a living. And I think as an, I'm a child of immigrants and you just want to make that sacrifice worth it. Did you model Yasmin after any of your own students? Yes. So I taught a group of girls at one point. It was actually a co-ed class, but a bunch of these girls, they were about middle school age, but the teacher told me that most of the girls were already arranged. And I remember being really surprised at that. Yeah, I could see where that would be surprising. Yasmin, as an American Yemeni, doesn't fit in with her fellow Americans, and yet the Yemeni culture is also a source of concern. Have you experienced this fence walking yourself? Yeah, any immigrant child is walking two cultures, and I've seen it in my students as well. Why not have her sit squarely on one side or the other? Because, so particularly what is interesting about Arab Americans' first generation is they often go to public schools. And public schools are our big Americanization machine. And so they're already getting one kind of culture from not only their teachers, but their peers. And then they have another culture at home. And they often love their home culture and they love this new American culture they're experiencing. How do you bridge that? And you see it in any immigrant child. The play seems to accept that arranged marriage is a viable option for Yasmin. Can you elaborate on why she chose to go through with it? 
That's one of the thematic questions in the play is what do we do for ourselves versus what do we do for our culture, but not just our culture, I mean the communal, the people around us. And in her situation, marrying him is good for the whole family. And so she goes through with it because that's one of the values that she grew up with. I think it's a really nuanced thing. You know, we can think of arranged marriage as bad, or there's all these new television shows that are saying, oh, arranged marriage is good. You know, Indian arranged marriage is called something like that. I don't think it's either or. I think it is much more nuanced, and that's what I wanted to explore in the play. And I think you you did a good job of doing that. I, um, I have to say that my first thought was the same as Royston is like what you know that is just not okay and then as the play continued on it was easier to see why she didn't outright reject the idea and you know I had read an article and it was about a teacher who had a beloved brilliant student and he found out she was going to be arranged and he he tried to get her to leave her culture and even said, I'll, I'll find a place for you to stay. And she was like, no, what are you talking about? She had to educate him. And he actually changed and he, he wrote this article about how he would never do such a thing again and how she made him understand that she needed to do it her way. She needed to figure out how to talk to her family and how to negotiate these two things where she wanted to go to school and the marriage. And and the other thing is, when I was uh, teaching those young girls who were arranged to be married, the teacher's response and my own response at the time was, oh, this is really bad. And in that case, it was not the best for the young women because they were angry. Those particular young women, they were 12 and 13. And they also were told not to study very hard. So in that case, that doesn't seem like a good situation. And it wasn't. But when I wrote this play, I was like, can I find a more nuanced understanding of this? Because many cultures do it and they do it somewhat successfully, probably at least as successfully as we do romantic love here. So clearly there's something to be argued. Let's talk about Royston for a minute. He has made many mistakes in his life, (laughs) and they've brought him to where he is today. For him, at least, actions have consequences. Is this a reflection on changes you're seeing where men can no longer have carte blanche? No, because I think also women can be arrogant. Women can create their own downfall as well. Yes, it is quite common in men, but I don't think it was a comment on men per se. I see him as an individual. And I also see, you know, these some of these universities' positions engender this feeling of superiority and um, power. They're given a lot of power. In the end, Royston, he finds that sacrifice provides some sort of personal redemption. Why was that important to the play? I think because it's important to me. I don't think we can ever say we love somebody or we care for someone unless we are willing to sacrifice for them. And I think that that's where you put your money where your mouth is. But this is also a man who has been supremely selfish and he has gotten where he is because he was selfish, partly because the demands of his study of science demanded that, and partly because of his growing power. He was able to be selfish and let everyone else do the more tedious work of life. 
I think also sacrifice is important to the play because the play has a spiritual component and sacrifice is a huge part of any personality purging itself in some way and becoming something better than it was. And I think I also was raised Catholic and sacrifice is at the center of that religion. So it's always been important to me. But again, this play is about, you know, particularly for Yasmin, how much do you sacrifice? So he's never sacrificed enough and she maybe has sacrificed a lot. And so how do they both meet in the middle where they need to find a new common ground for their their own selves? Yeah, it did seem that at least in part of it, that Royston was taking credit for her work. Mm. You know, she was coming up with these ideas and perhaps he had the understanding of how to take those ideas to the next level to do the research, but the initial ideas were coming from Yasmin. And yet he was initially, at least, presenting this as his work and that she was just his assistant, where in reality it kind of almost felt like that was it a flip of the actual script that was happening. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I created that purposely as just these two characters, but then I found out that actually that is what goes on in science. So you have the lead scientist and they take credit for every all these discoveries, most of them. And then the underling knows that what they're going to get out of it is a really good letter of recommendation. Now, there was, in my reading... Because I thought this was, as I was creating it, I was like, well, wait, this feels like a form of plagiarism. So I kind of looked up and read really interesting articles about plagiarism in science, not taking someone else's idea from another lab, but from their own lab. And I found an interesting case where a student at a really good school challenged her professor for, for taking her idea as her own. And she brought it, I don't know where she could bring it up into what public, the court of public opinion, but she brought it up and she actually won that he did take her ideas that she had developed in his lab. However, she never had a real career after that. They blacklisted her, so she got the vindication but they blacklisted her. She did wind up working in a lab, but it was not at a lab at the level she should have been at, and she never had the career she should have had. I left the play feeling hopeful that Yasmin will succeed and also that Royston will find a way to embrace his value as a teacher. And was that your intent? Yes. I mean, we don't know where Yasmin will be in five years in terms of this arranged marriage. I don't know how it'll work out. But I think the fact that she's going to be honest with Samir is really important. She's going to tell him what her real dreams are. And I think Royston, through this experience, maybe this isn't now his way out immediately. But I think he has a more important way out in the future in terms of being a complete man and treating people correctly. And that was part of what got him kicked out of Colombia, not treating people correctly. So this might help with his career. I think it'll also help with his children. You've written a half dozen plays. How long do you work on a play? I worked on Paradise for four years because I have a really intense teaching schedule. So a lot of my teaching interrupts that. Also for Paradise, I did uh, about 
two years of research, both the Yemeni research and the science research. My play just finished Beyond Words, which will be produced at Central Square in Boston next year. That took about four years as well. I have other plays that have taken two years. I have another play that took 10 years. Then I've written shorter plays that are written much more quickly. How much time did you spend researching the Yemeni culture? The funny thing is I thought she was going to be Albanian-American because actually those that group of young girls that I taught were, many of them were Albanian-American. So I actually spent two years researching the Albanian-American community, and I went to all kinds of events and parties and interviewed people and then realized that arranged marriage is not as prevalent as it was back when I was teaching those young girls. So I was like, I have to scrap this, all this that I wrote this whole culture because it's not truthful. So then I started the Yemeni research. I was really aided by this book called All American Yemeni Girls. And I also was aided by the fact that I had a partner for five years who was Arab American. So even though he was Lebanese American, and that is very different culture, I had a emotional feel for Arab American culture. So I felt like I started with something very strong in terms of how I felt about the culture. And then it was very slow to get people to open up to me about the culture and about arranged marriages. I had to have one-on-one introductions with people. And that took like another, you know, a year of doing that. So fan question, what was it like working with Viola Davis? You know, I didn't work with her. She and um, her husband, Julius, put up the money for the L.A. production. But I will say that she came to opening night and then she went back and she spoke to the director and she gave the actor warm-ups to do to help that actor always be ready because it's a really demanding role emotionally. And yet at the top of the play, she's covering a lot of her feelings. And Viola had the most incredible exercises. So for example, she gave the actor playing Yasmin, she told her to, there's a panic attack in the play. That's a very hard section. She asked the actor to run through that panic attack twice before the play began. Then she asked, there's another part of the play where she's defending her culture, and she told her to do to do that twice before she went on stage as well, doing it full out anger. And we would never have asked the actor to do that because it's such a commitment emotionally. It would be exhausting before you even got on stage, these two separate very intense sections of the play. And she had no qualms about asking an actor to do that, which said to me the kind of preparation that Viola does, the kind of willingness to put herself through that intensity of sense memory and emotion, the gift that she gives to anyone when she acts is that ability to do that. So I learned something about Viola from that. That's great. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us for season two of Upwilling. You've been listening to an interview with local author Tansy Chapman, local poet Maureen Epstein, and two-time Emmy Award winning Laura Maria Sensabella. I'm Michelle Blackwell. Our intro and exit music are provided by Paul Blackwell. To share this show with other listeners, go to kzyx.org or wherever you get your podcasts.
This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg, 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org. Please consider donating by clicking the red button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.